0: is our theme this morning in our continuing series on things to come. You have your Bible in hand. I want to direct your attention to the 24th chapter of Matthew along with the passage we have already read in Revelation. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, the words of our Lord who knew a lot about this subject in this great chapter that is almost a panorama of history. Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give its light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Before I read the 31st verse, I just want to insert here something of importance. When we talked about the rapture of the church in our first message on this or in this series, we mentioned that he comes only in the clouds. The dead in Christ are raised first, We which are alive and remain are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Not everybody sees the Lord, only those who love him and know him. But here, notice, in verse number 30, They shall see the Son of Man, the they being all of the inhabitants of the earth who were not in that company, who were taken up in the rapture. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So he is bringing together through the power of the angels all of the redeemed hosts to return to earth to establish a millennium of peace. Now this is a very descriptive passage of scripture before us this morning it is in direct fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, chapter 2, verses 34 and 35. When Daniel reported the following, "'Thou sawest until a stone was cut out without hands, "'which smote the image upon its feet "'that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces.' Then were the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold, broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled all the earth. What was Daniel seeing? He was seeing what is described in Revelation 19 and described in Matthew 24, the stone being Jesus himself, this stone smiting the image, breaking it in pieces, and then becoming a great mountain, and a mountain that literally filled the whole earth. So will be the presence of Jesus in that great day. Now, there are six things that come to me from Scripture that I want to share with you about the battle of Armageddon. So many people feel disturbed about coming events. They feel unsure. They do not seem to know the order of things. And friends, the Bible is clear on the order. You don't need to be in mystery. You don't need to be shrouded in mystery at all you can have clarity, and particularly, do we have a clear definition of what this battle is about, who will be involved, and how it will end. So follow with me very carefully, if you will, these six points about the battle of Armageddon. We begin at verse number 15 of Revelation 19. He comes to smite the nations with a sword out of his mouth. Now, as we try to understand the language of the revelation, many things come to mind. The first thing is that before the event described in Revelation 19, the words that were coming out of the Lord's mouth were words of blessing. They are recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ. Words of blessing, words of comfort, words of power. Now, in that day, a sword will come to smite the nations. In his mouth is a sword. Not words of blessing, not words of salvation and comfort, but words of judgment. He is coming to smite the nations. He has sent out the word to slay the sin in men. In that day, the word will go out to slay men in sin. And it's important that you see those two distinctions. Let me go by that one more time for you. Jesus was sent out to slay the sin in men. He was the Word of God incarnate in the flesh. In that day, however, the Word, Jesus, will go out to slay men in sin. Now, I cannot stand here and say to you today that I get a great deal of joy in telling you that. I don't believe God has a great deal of joy in sharing that with us either. But as we have explained before, because He's a God of justice, He gives us ample warning of what it will be like. He does not just tell us that He's a God of love and a God of blessing and a God of comfort. He shows us what will happen to men in disobedience. So that in their disobedience, hopefully, the Word will slay the sin in them so that He does not have to slay them in sin. And that is why I have to take time in my preaching calendar to share this kind of message with you because it's a part of God's eternal truth. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 11 verse 4, He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Like it or not, it's there. It's in the canon of Scripture. It is there for our edification and our help that we might escape the wrath that will come. I was seeking for an illustration of what this could be like, and God showed me out of the very experience of Jesus what this could be like. The account in Scripture is in the 18th chapter of John, verses 4 through 6. Jesus was in the garden praying. Suddenly a mob was seen at the entrance to the garden, and Jesus arose from the place of prayer and said to the crowd, Whom seek ye? They replied simply, Jesus of Nazareth. And then very quietly, Jesus said, I am he. Now what happens next in John 18, 4 through 6, is most intriguing to me. For the Bible says that when he said, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. As I saw that anew in Scripture, I thought if such power could come out of his mouth then when he was man and God, then what will it be when he comes in judgment with a sword in his mouth who will be able to stand? Man says, I'll take my chances, man often shakes his fist in the face of God and curses God, but he simply says, I am He, and they fall backward and fall to the ground. God is trying to alert us to the fact that no one will be able to stand in His presence That word will be such a powerful, devastating word that no one will be able to stand. Look at it again. He comes to smite the nations with a sword out of his mouth. Don't take your chances with him, friend. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he could have slain them all with a word if it had been God's will. But to show us his power, they fell down with but a word from his mouth. The second thing about this tremendous time in history is also in verse 15, where we read, He comes to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now that is so unlike our image of the Lord. He hung on a cross and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. They literally crucified the Son of Glory and He allowed them to do it. Today He deals in grace. Today He deals in mercy. He pleads with men through His servants and through His Word and by His Spirit to love Him and to obey Him. But when we come to Revelation 19 and... Matthew chapter 24, the day of grace will be over, and He will compel men to obey Him. You see, their choice is taken out of the way then. The choice is over, the day of grace is past. Today His insignia is the cross, a symbol of submission to death. In that day His insignia will be a rod of iron. The theme runs all through the word. Genesis 3.15 is where it begins, where the prophet of God, Moses, says he will crush the head of the serpent. When will it be fulfilled? Right here, when with a rod of iron he rules, no longer submissive to men's whims and will, no longer submissive to their desires against him, but he will come with a rod of iron, he will crush the head of the serpent, and he will bring evil men to naught. It's important that you see him in that light, because that's the way he will be demonstrated in that day. He will put his enemies under his feet. Thirdly, in verse 15, he comes to tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Now, this is an interesting passage. All the nations of the earth evidently are gathered under the leadership of the Antichrist to fight against the Lord and his hosts. But go back to Revelation 14, verse 20, and take a look at this significant verse. Revelation 14, 20 reads, And the wine press was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the wine press, even under the horse bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. The nations gathered together under Antichrist to fight against the Lord. We read about that in Revelation 19. Interesting reading. They came to fight against the Lord. But Revelation 14 says, for 200 miles around Armageddon, the carnage will be so great that the blood will be up to the horse's bits. Now, you may have never been on Megiddo in the valley of Armageddon. I have been there numbers of times, and each time it is a thrill to take this passage of Scripture, look out over that great valley and think about what has been said. For 200 miles, blood up to the horse's bits. I've asked myself every time I've been there, could it happen? And as you look out there, from every angle you have to say, sure it could happen. Look at how it's framed. It's like a trough, which would bring about the exact fulfillment of what the revelator saw on the Isle of Patmos. He has been rejected through the centuries, and God will have been openly blasphemed, and the divine executioner steps forth to do his work. And the only verbiage that John could come up with is this, the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. I was in an antique shop once, and I saw this little funny-looking machine, and I inquired as to what it was, and I was told it was a little wine press. How does it work? Well, you simply put the grapes inside here, and you work this handle, and the grapes turn to juice. Out flows the pure juice of the grape the press of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Man is literally put into the winepress, all of his rebellion, all of his sin, all of his arrogance, and the handle is turned, and out flows blood that runs to the bridles or bits of the horses that have come into the valley of Armageddon but men are willing to let it happen men are willing to go that far passing up God's day of visitation and God's day of grace number four verses 17 through 19 the birds get ready to devour the flesh of the dead In this passage, the word flesh is mentioned five times. On the earth, men have lived after the flesh and not after the Spirit, and now at this hour their flesh is going to be literally devoured. No wonder Paul said, live in the Spirit and do not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. You see, it's interesting to trace God's hand through history. God never leaves a thing undone. He always follows through to the very nth degree. He warns us in Scripture not to live after the flesh, but if we disobey Him, then the birds are told to come and devour our flesh. The very thing that ruined us will be devoured by the birds of the air. He tells us to live in righteousness, but if we choose unrighteousness, then it is the very unrighteous antichrist, the very one unlike Jesus Christ, that comes to destroy us and control us. He never leaves a thing undone. He follows from beginning to end. An angel stands in the sun. Everyone can see him. He cries with a loud voice. Everyone can hear him. He speaks to all the birds of the air, telling them to get ready for the great supper. Nothing ever like it in history. Revelation 16:16 gives us the name of the place for this battle. It's the only place it's identified in all the Bible. The word is Armageddon, the mountains of Megiddo often referred to in Old Testament Scripture as a military stronghold, such as Joshua chapter 12, verse 21, chapter 17, verse 11, Second 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 27, 2 Kings 23, verse 27 or 29. Megiddo is one of the most ancient cities in the world. It was first settled some 6,000 years ago. It commands the strategic highway from Egypt to the north, a natural scene of numerous battles throughout history, from its conquest in 1479 B.C. to its capture by Israeli forces in 1946, battle after battle, conquest after conquest, 20 strata of settlement at Megiddo, 20 levels of history. It has become the most fertile valley in all of Israel. When I first went there in 1965 and stood to look out over that land, part of it was cultivated and productive. And the guide said at that time, 85 years ago, it was all a swamp infested by mosquitoes. But I looked out and saw crops that were bearing four fruits a year. In other words, they would produce and reproduce and reproduce and reproduce again. In one year, four crops. When I was there last March, I looked out over that valley and now all of it is fertile. It is all lush. It is all growing, producing four crops a year, to the right, to the left, in front and behind. Everywhere you look from the Megiddo, you see that valley producing all of those marvelous crops. Again, God never leaves a thing undone. We fail to thank Him. We fail to give Him praise for what the earth produces, so God takes that same fertile valley and again turns it into a swamp, only this time a swamp filled with blood, the blood of unregenerate nations of this earth who dare to fight against God. No wonder we call this a day of grace. We do not merit it. We do not deserve it. I have had this brought to my attention again these last few weeks when we read, 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 hear, 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 all of the verbiage of politician against politician and if everything they say is true, it's a miracle that we're here yet. How could God with or withhold His judgment of everything they say about each other is true. We are depraved and degenerate. The thing that bothers me is it's probably true. <laughs> and yet God withholds His judgment. What grace! What mercy! What blessing! What are you going to do with it? Wait until the sword is in his mouth, or receive the blessing he has in this dispensation of mercy. Fifth, verse 20, the Antichrist and his false prophet will be cast alive into a lake of fire. Note the words, cast alive. They are not killed but are put there to suffer forever and to pay for their rebellion against God. Note verse 20 in chapter 19, the beast was taken and with him the false prophet. The Antichrist doesn't even have a chance to lead his army against the Lord. The very thing he's wanted to do for all of this this time, he doesn't even get a chance to do. He defies God. He was going to throw God from his throne. Oh, isn't that humorous? The great Christ merely moved his hand and all of the Antichrist's vaunted power was gone and he found himself in a lake of fire with a hood on it that he could never get out of. Marvelous. Hmm. All Jesus had to do was move his hand and it was over. Mighty Antichrist, done for in hell forever. Men say, I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But as God took the Antichrist and the false prophet and brought them down, someday with the greatest of ease, he will bring rebellious sinners down from their high places. All the humanists, all the atheists and the agnostics, they will be brought down. I do not say that with joy. My heart bleeds for them. But it will happen if they continue to reject the love and mercy of God. Deny his existence. Antichrist is going to fight against him. Pull him down. Pfft. He's done for that quick, that easy. If you've ever thought you'd like to be the Antichrist, you better rethink that. Your power is no more than what he allows, and when he says it's enough, brother, it's it. That's all there is about it. The remnant were slain with the sword that proceeds from the mouth of him on the white horse. Verse 21. The remnant. No wonder there is blood for 200 miles around. The remnant, hundreds, thousands, millions perhaps in that valley, slain with the sword that proceeds from the mouth of him on the white horse. Ezekiel 39, 17 pictures this scene. Ezekiel saw it years before Christ came in flesh, and thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl, and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice, that I do sacrifice for you even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat flesh and drink blood. The experience I have had of riding down the highway and there you see an animal on the side of the road, dead for one reason or another. Often a vulture is there pulling at the decaying flesh, kind of nauseating the watch. And sometimes the stench that filters through the air is unpleasant. How much more awful after the Battle of Armageddon, picture of a line of dead bodies 200 miles with the scavengers of the air greedily devouring their flesh. 200 miles long. From here past Fresno, California, body after body being pulled apart by the birds of the air. This is a picture of what sin brings. If you've ever wondered about sin, Could I endeavor to paint that picture again? This is what sin brings. This is the result of sin. You cannot defy God and reject His Son and get away with it. It is the outcome of sin. Decaying bodies, birds of the air, ripping the flesh and drinking the blood. It is the result of S-I-N. That's all you can say about it. That's why Jesus came and died for sin and for sinners. That we might escape through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Hallelujah. Receive him today. Finally, the judgment of the nations is a part of this last battle. And I ask you to turn back to Matthew 25, verses 31 to 36. You've got to see this because it's so misunderstood by many. Matthew 25, 31 to 36, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. What throne is that? It's the millennial throne. It's not the heavenly throne. It's the millennial throne. Some people have read after the 31st verse and said, Well, how can He gather the nations and separate them? From right to left. How does that fit into heaven? It isn't heaven, it's earth. He sits on the throne of His glory when He has come in His glory. Verse 32 And before Him shall be gathered all the nations, and He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats and he shall set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. What kingdom? The earthly kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and ye gave me food. I was thirsty and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger and ye took me in. Naked and ye clothed me. I was sick and ye visited me. I was in prison and ye came unto me and they said, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, and we fed you. Thirsty, and we gave you drink. Naked, and we clothed you. He said, when you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren. Who are these, my brethren? They're the Jews. They're his kin. He was a Jew, born of Jewish parents. During that great time of tribulation and the raging battle of Armageddon, Those who will not take the mark of the beast cannot buy and they cannot sell and some refuse to do it because of their faith in the Messiah. And there are some nations who say, we will take in these vagabonds. We will take in these Jewish brethren. We believe that Christ was a Jew. He came to bless the Jew. We will feed them. We will hide them. We will clothe them. And Jesus says in this time as he sits on his throne in Jerusalem and the nations come before him, you blessed Israel, come to the right. You will have blessing in the millennium. You have denied them. You have killed them. Go to the left. You will be judged in this kingdom of millennial reign. I don't know where the United States will be at that time. I don't have any input on that at all from Scripture. But I pray they will be on the right. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 122, verse 6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. How will the nations treat those Jewish evangelists, 144,000 of them that go out to preach the word to the earth? That will be the basis of the judgment at that moment when he sits on his earthly throne to judge the nations of the earth. When you come to that point in the story, you're ready for a thousand years of peace, a thousand years of prosperity, and a thousand years of plenty. The story gets better from here on. Are you going to see his glory in that day? Did you notice how the scripture said that There will be a host coming back with him. Are you in that group? Or are you in this group? It's pretty clear, isn't it? When you follow those six points through Scripture, where everything will be. A group of callers in our church was visiting in a home, and the man was very defiant. He said, I'm an agnostic. He said, I don't believe in God, and I don't believe in the Bible. But during the conversation, he turned to speak to his son, and he called his son Adam. Adam. (laughs) I don't believe in God, and I don't have time for this word, the Bible. Do you know what Adam means? Created in the image of God. You see how confused men get? They named their children Adam, created in the image of God, but they defiantly say, I don't believe in him, I don't believe in this book. You can say what you like, he is still God and he will have the final word, and we need to get our thinking straightened out, prepare to meet thy God. Somebody told me this story, it might have been Rich Wilkerson. He's told me a lot of stories. And I thought, when in the world could I use that in a sermon? <laughs> Never thought I could, but I can. Today. It was a story of three burly fellows on huge motorcycles. You know, their handlebars are way up here and they sit way back there and they got leather on and they're top. They got beards and daggers in their belts and they're running around the world on these bikes. So they roar into a cafe, park those bikes, and bang through the door, and they're sitting at a counter as a truck driver, not a very big guy, but he drove one of these big rigs. And they thought they'd have a little fun with him, so they go over and grab his food out from in front of him and laugh in his face, see what he'll do. He didn't say anything. He just got up from his seat, paid for his food at the cash register, and walked out. One of the three cyclists, unhappy that they hadn't succeeded in provoking this little man, commented to the waitress, boy, he sure wasn't much of a man, was he? "Ah," She said, I guess not. Then looking out the window, she said to those three fellows, I guess he's not much of a truck driver either. He just ran over three huge motorcycles in the parking lot. Isn't that a great story? What is the application? It is so simple. God will have the last word. (laughs) He may not say anything for a while. He may let man go in his rebellion and his humanistic ways. But just wait till the truck gets moving, folks. Just wait till that clock hits midnight and everything starts falling into place. And men's hearts begin to fail them for fear. And they cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them because of the wrath of him who sits on the throne. He may let you go now, but he will have the last word. Mark it down. Where will you be in that day? The burning of my heart is that not a one of you be not a one of you who watches me by television will be absent in the rapture of the church to be left behind for the judgment of God. It's my hearts cry that not a one who listens by radio or by tape anywhere in this world will be lost. For he is sending out his messengers of grace and his messengers of mercy saying, Repent, believe the gospel, and come into the place prepared for the angels. Will you be in that crowd? I pray so. Don't push your lock. Don't wait too long. Don't pull the food out from in front of him yet. Because he will have the last word in this whole story. History is his story. But he will write the last chapter. Come to him today. Give your life to him today. He stands waiting with open arms. Bow your heads, please, with me in prayer all over the building. Hallelujah. With our heads bowed, may I explain 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 deals with the workings of the Holy Spirit in the local church. There are nine gifts given to the local church. Three of them are gifts of utterance, speaking in tongues, the interpretation thereof, and prophecy. These gifts do not imply, nor does the Word imply, that the utterance is perfect, but it does imply that they are for the warning of sinners and the edification of saints. And God has underscored the message of his Word through these gifts. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to believe. God has signally come down into this room and spoken to us directly through these gifts to tell us the time is short and we should repent. And I listened with interest to the word saint and sinner. Judgment must begin in the house of God. If Christ should come today... Would you truly be ready? I don't care if your name's on the roll of the church or not. Would you truly be ready? Is your name in heaven's book? That's the big one. Now, Jesus, thank you for speaking. Draw every sinner to Christ and to the cross, and draw every saint, every Christian so called, to a place of repentance where we are trusting Christ completely and not leaning to our own understanding. We're breaking from the world today and following hard after Jesus. Hallelujah. Touch us all, and especially those who have never made a choice to follow Christ, or those who have gone back on their decision and today have the opportunity to return. Draw them by your Spirit. While our heads are bowed,